Uh, this is going to be video two. I'm going to try and get through more than three and a half, four minutes <laughs> of uh, Pastor Mike's uh, talk about unbiblical stuff in the Catholic Church. Uh, this will hopefully be enlightening. Uh, this may be a lot of things that you've never seen or, or heard of before, uh, or maybe you're going to hear things that he says that you think are true, uh, but hopefully I'm going to be able to dispel uh, a good amount of what I think is otherwise well-intentioned, probably nonsense. Um, it doesn't really square with what the church teaches, so we'll just kind of jump right into this here. Because you don't have enough with just uh, just Jesus. The first one is baptism. Now, specifically in Catholic theology, you have to be baptized in the Catholic Church. You can't just get baptized. You've got to be baptized in the Catholic Church. That's actually already wrong. In fact, the Catholic Church recognizes the validity of the baptisms of nearly every single Christian denomination out there. Um, the few exceptions would be ones that are non-Trinitarian. Uh, so baptisms by the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are basically polytheists, uh, though they believe in Christ, um, their baptisms are not presumed to be valid. Um, and there are a few others. If you don't use the Trinitarian format, if you just baptize, let's say, in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier, or just in the name of Jesus. Um, but the things that are necessary for baptism are just water in the Trinitarian format uh, and an intention to baptize them as appropriately as possible. Now, there's actually an interesting question here, and I've never, um, I've asked people higher up than me <laughs> with more knowledge than I have. You know, there are a lot of Protestants out there who view baptism merely as a symbol uh, and not as a sacrament. And so there's a question about whether or not they are baptizing um, validly uh, in the, you know, if, if the intention is in fact a part of it. But by and large, the church actually recognizes as valid the baptisms of nearly every single Christian uh, denomination out there. So this is an untruth, but let's continue. And that bit, baptism is generally going to take place at infancy. And you might be like, why do they baptize infants? I don't understand. If it's a coming of age public proclamation and it's not efficacious, meaning there is no effect in baptism, then baptizing infants makes no sense at all. However, we actually know uh, from history and from tradition uh, and from scripture that infant baptism makes a lot of sense. I'm going to let him talk a little bit further and then we'll dive into this a little bit further. Understand this. I thought I thought it was a believer's baptism. Why do we baptize infants in the Catholic Church? And the reason is because of what they think baptism does. In Not what we think, but what it does. Catholicism, baptism, doesn't get rid of uh, of all your sins. It gets rid of original sin. It gets rid of that Adam and Eve inherited sinfulness. So it's a very peculiar view of baptism. And that's why they're willing to baptize an infant, because it's not getting rid of an infant's sins. It's getting rid of the sins inherited through Adam and Eve on that infant. This is what a Catholic views as being born again, or at least in Catholic theology. When you get baptized, you are therefore born again. However, that doesn't make any change of your life or any change of the way you live or anything like that, as we would suggest as born-again Christians, born again as a, a life transformation experience of Jesus Christ. It's more of a, um, just a declaration. Okay, you're baptized, you're born again. But, so baptism, baptism is, according to Vatican II, it is only a beginning, but it is necessary for salvation. It is normatively necessary for salvation. And here's something that a lot of people 
get confused on. And I can understand why this would seem confusing, because on, on the one hand, you view Catholicism and you think, well, there's lots of rules and strictures and everything else. But on the other hand, they can be so free and capricious. You know, and they can say, well, not everyone needs to be baptized to be saved. And so there's this weird tension point, right? And Jesus makes this statement to Nicodemus in John chapter uh, 3, you know, unless a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into heaven. Um, and in fact, for the longest time, the church took that as an absolute in their understanding. It wasn't taught uh, strictly absolutely, um, but it was something that was a general presumption. Well, if Jesus says so, then we're just going to take him at his words. But we know that, that here's the deal. The, the sacraments use matter and form. Matter is whatever is the matter in the, the sacrament itself. In baptism, it, it, it's water. In the Eucharist, it's bread and it's wine. Uh, in holy orders or confirmation, laying on of hands, it's the laying on of hands and it's the oil uh, that is used. But these physical realities, these tangible, touchable things are used as a way to impart grace to us, uh, which is, of course, the very life of God. And I want to give you a quick rundown on Catholic sacramental theology here in just a second. Um, but at the end of the day, hang on. But so we know that God gave us the sacraments uh, as a way to, to, to give us that grace, but God is not himself limited to the sacraments, which is why when Jesus is dying on the cross, he can look at the thief on his right and tell him, uh, the repentant thief, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Now, there's actually something extra weird going on there because, of course, Jesus isn't necessarily talking about heaven. He's talking about uh, probably the good part of Sheol, or of, of, uh, Sheol, which is called Abraham's bosom, as opposed to the bad side, which is called Hades, where we see in the, the parable or the story of Lazarus and the rich man, uh, the rich man goes to Hades, uh, which is the Greek term, and, the, uh, and Lazarus goes to, to Abraham's bosom. Uh, and there's definitely awareness there and, and, and everything else, and we'll probably come back to that later when we start talking about the saints. Uh, but we know that when Jesus died, he descended into the dead. Uh, St. Peter tells us in, in uh, 1 Peter 3 that he preached the gospel uh, to those who were disobedient in the days of Noah, where eight people in all were saved uh, via, uh, via the boat. In fact, let me pull it up. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Ah, uh, shoot. <laughs> there we go. Uh, in the days of Noah, uh, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So just as real as the ark was used to save the world as it washed away the wickedness of men uh, in, in, in the account of, of Noah and the flood, so too baptism, which corresponds to this, saves you now. It is not a removal just of dirt from the body, but it is the appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and sits at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. This is pretty darn clear, right? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And we can see this in the ministry of the early church. This is from Acts 22. Uh, this is verse uh, 16. Uh, this is Ananias speaking. He says, uh, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling 
on his name. So again, baptism is directly connected with the washing away of sin. So there is a physical uh, symbolism there, right? Uh, water. It's one of the reasons uh, the valid form of the or the valid uh, matter of the sacrament of baptism is water. You can't baptize with motor oil or coffee or chocolate milk uh, because none of these would complete the the form of the sacrament, which is a washing. Uh, that is the primary form of the, of the sacrament, or the primary uh, intention, or the primary symbol being relayed. And so there absolutely is symbolism used in the sacraments, but they are not mere sacraments. The, the, they are visible realities of an intangible, invisible reality, and they impart the grace of God to us. This is why in Titus 3, uh, St. Paul says, He saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, which is speaking of both baptism and confirmation, right? But there we go, the washing of regeneration. Baptism is regenerative. It repairs something in the soul, something that was damaged, something that was uh, deficient from the beginning. And as we'll see in a minute, that was actually the belief of the early church as well. Here we are in Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to skip down to verse 38, um, which is down here. Uh, now then, when they heard this, uh, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. So literally, what is the command that Peter gives them? One of the very first thing with the very first converts is repent and be baptized, right? Be baptized. Uh, and he says, you know, the promise is to you and your children and all of those that are far off to everyone whom the Lord God calls them. So this is a perpetual institution for everybody, for the whole family. And it makes sense, right? Uh, in the Old Covenant, and Paul actually makes this point um, when we talk about baptism for children. We can see here, we can see lots of other places. Uh, Paul speaks about baptizing entire households. And I think that Mike actually makes this point, if I recall. Um, and he says, well, we don't know that that involved children or not. There's no reason to assume it didn't. Nearly all households involved very young children, children who would have been uh, too young to uh, make the um, you know, the decision to follow Jesus in their heart or, you know, whatever you want to say, right? But they would have still been baptized in the same way uh, that uh, an eight-day-old male would have been circumcised under Jewish law, and that's what brought them into the covenant. They didn't make that decision for themselves. That decision was made on their behalf um, by their parents, right? And just as the new and everlasting covenant is in Greek, Catholicos, Catholic, universal. It's for everyone. So too, the symbol that brings us into the new covenant is itself universal. Uh, it actually applies to men and women. I actually think that is absolutely beautiful symbolism. But let's pull up Paul really. So this is the second chapter of Colossians, and we see Paul talking about the fullness of life in Christ. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul is calling baptism the circumcision of Christ. It's the thing that brings us into the faith. We die with Christ and we're also raised with him. But he's calling it the circumcision. Now, in the Old Covenant, 
Who was circumcised? Well, initially, and this is always one of those stories that's kind of interesting, uh, when uh, Abraham is told uh, uh, to enter into the covenant uh, through circumcision, uh, he, of course, is a, is a very old man. Um, he has Ishmael, uh, who is his son via Hagar, uh, with him as well. And all of his people in his tribe are to enter into this covenant. Now, this is an era without antiseptic, <laughs> without anesthesia, uh, and probably with just a flint knife. So the very concept of uh, circumcision uh, is a very brutal concept back then, right? It really took a, an amount of faith uh, in, in God. To, to be willing to uh, enter into this covenant with him, which I always just find uh, interesting. But the normal person who was circumcised was not an adult, uh, other than at the beginning, because there weren't a lot of adult converts to Judaism. The normal person who was baptized was an infant who was eight days old. That is the norm. For any Jewish person, if you talk about circumcision, it's almost always going to call to mind, um, it's going to call to mind babies, right? At their, their bris, uh, when you have the, the, the moil come in, uh, and, uh, you know, snip, snip, right? Literally the, the image of circumcision is almost exclusively an image of babies. And so just as it was circumcision that brought us into the old covenant, so too the new circumcision is baptism. Uh, being buried in baptism, we're raised with him as well. And we know that it is regenerative and then it washes away sin. This is just simply what the scriptures state. And to deny that is to deny a truth uh, lived out in the scriptures themselves and by the early church. So let's take a look at a few more things here. So I'm just going to pick up my notes over here. You can look these up on your own. Uh, in Acts 16.33, we know Paul baptizes the jailer, jailer who was an adult along with his entire uh, household. And again, uh, the, this oikos almost certainly would have included, that's the Greek word for household, uh, would have included uh, children. In uh, 1 Corinthians 1.16, Paul also tells us he baptized the entire household of Stephanus. And this actually even harkens to, um, we know that there's a real efficaciousness, a real effectiveness that is worth, um, it's worth having children experience this. There's a, there's a scene in scripture and you probably know this. It's very famous. Lots of people talk about it. It's, it's the, the people are bringing babies to Jesus. Uh, the word in Greek is brefe and it literally means infants. It's not like, you know, toddlers or four-year-olds or six-year-olds. I mean, they're, they're bringing infants to Jesus. Um, and the apostles rebuke them <laughs> and they say, uh, you know, don't, don't bother the master with, with your children. And Jesus says, no, let the little children come to me. Right. Why? Well, all, in part, because he's going to teach them a lesson about the passivity with which, uh, we are brought, uh, through grace to Christ, right? Literally, we must become as little children, but also because there's a real benefit to those children being brought to him, right? It actually affects them in some positive way, being brought to the, the man who is God who created the whole universe, right? So we know, we know that baptism is the new circumcision, and circumcision as a symbol was almost universally given only to infants, and it brought them into the Old Covenant. We know that Paul tells us that baptism is the new circumcision. Peter tells us that it saves us now. Um, you know, have your sins washed away, etc. Baptism is regenerative. That is simply the mission and, 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 and principle statement in, in Scripture. So what did the early church believe? Well, let me pull up some notes here. Hang on. 
So one of my favorite early church fathers, and actually my namesake, is Justin Martyr, patron saint of philosophers. And he wrote this in his first apology. An apology is not like apologizing like what we think of today, but it's, an, it's a defense, literally. Uh, Plato has uh, Socrates' apology, the apology of Socrates, and that's his defense against the, the, the charges the Athenians were laying at his hands, where they're going to put him to death. And he's basically like, put me to death. Heck, you should be paying me. <laughs> And of course, it winds up with his death. But um, so that's what the word apology means. Uh, in fact, the, the very study, what I'm doing right now is apologetics. And it's it's a def- giving a defense of the faith, which is, again, what Peter talks about, right? Be ready to give a defense of the faith, uh, but do it with gentleness and, and charity. So, you know, I'm not here trying to attack uh, Mike, but I am trying to show that what he says is just without uh, any real backing. So this is Justin Martyr uh, writing around 155, 165 AD probably. So this is within 100 years of the apostles. He says this about, uh, this is actually just about the effectiveness of baptism first. Uh, For Christ also said, except ye be born again, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now that it is impossible for those who have once been born to enter their mother's wombs, it is manifest all. This is the same conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus in John 6 or John 3. Uh, and how those who have sinned and repent shall escape their sins as declared by Isaiah the prophet. He says, this is the translation here, Isaiah, but Isaiah the prophet, as I wrote above, uh, thus he speaks, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from your soul, learn to do well, and through your sins, though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white like wool, though they be as crimson, I will make them white as snow. And for this right, we have learned from the apostles this reason. Since at our birth we were born without our own knowledge or choice by our parents coming together and were brought up in bad habits and wicked training, in order that we may not remain the children of necessity and of ignorance, but may become the children of choice and knowledge, and may obtain in the water the remission of sins formerly committed, there is pronounced over him who chooses to be born again and has repented of his sins the name of God the Father and the Lord of the universe. He who leads the layer, the person that is to be washed, calling him by this name alone. And this washing is called illumination because they who learn these things are illuminated in their understandings. And in the name of Jesus Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and in the name of the Holy Ghost, uh, who through the prophets foretold all these things about Jesus, he who is illuminated is washed. So he's speaking very clearly of this idea of, of the baptism washing you and making you clean. This is, you know, it's a wordy, it's a wordy passage, but literally that's what he's talking about. This is the washing that makes you white as wool. In that same apology, uh, Justin Martyr speaks and he says this, many, both men and women who have been Christ's disciples from childhood, from infancy, remain pure at the age of 60 or 70 years. So he speaks about a lifetime of discipleship. Writing just a few years after Justin Martyr, Hippolytus actually gives uh, instructions on how to do baptism. And he says this, and they shall baptize the little children first. And if they can answer for themselves, let them answer. But if they cannot, let their parents answer for them or someone in their family. So again, this was the practice from the very beginning. This is, you know, 215. This is still the the martyr church, right? This is still uh, a church being persecuted by Rome, a church that is in hiding. This is not the the post-Constantine, post-Nicaea church, right? This is the martyr church. And this is simply how they practiced uh, the traditions. In fact, this is from Hippolytus of Rome in a document entitled Apostolic Tradition, giving the rubric for how we pass down the faith. Uh, here we have another church father. This is actually Origen. I didn't put this down here. 
And now Origen's kind of a funny case because later in his life, he seems to have possibly uh, fallen into heresy, right? So bear in mind, again, he's not a doctor of the church by any means, uh, but he is one of the early Christians who bears witness to the testimony. And there's actually a lot of people who suggest that Origen himself never fell into heresy, um, but later people uh, misconstrued his writings. But anyway, he wrote this. He says, every soul that is born into flesh is soiled by the filth of wickedness and sin. In the church, baptism is given for the remissions of sin and according to the usage of the church, baptism is given even to infants. If there were nothing in infants which required the remission of sin and nothing in them pertinent to forgiveness, the grace of baptism would seem superfluous. It would be unnecessary if we didn't have the stain of original sin, this fault that came through the first man, through Adam, uh, that the new man, Jesus, washes away. Uh, elsewhere, he writes this. He says, the church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants. Again, this is still the martyr church. The apostles to whom were committed the secrets of the divine sacraments knew there are in everyone innate strains of original sin, which must be washed away through water and the spirit. I mean, it doesn't get much clearer than that. And he's literally saying this is an apostolic tradition handed down um, from person to person, uh, from the original popes uh, and the bishops, uh, all the way down to the bishops of his days. Uh, and that's only just a couple hundred years. It's now been almost 2000 years and it hasn't stopped. Right. But just notice how central the idea of the church receiving this from the apostles and the apostles uh, passing this on as, as something that was supposed to be done. This is how the early church functioned. This is before there was a Bible, at least a New Testament, right? The, the, the books of the New Testament have been written at this point. They were circulated. Many of them were read liturgically along with other books uh, like the writings of Clement and uh, Irenaeus or um, Ignatius of Antioch and a bunch of others. Uh, but this is, this is the martyr church. This is them carrying out their day-to-day -day life, right? Uh, and of course, this is actually, in fairness, uh, this is... Uh, origin commenting on uh, one of Paul's letters. So he is uh, taking a letter that was widely received and used liturgically, uh, one of Paul's letters, and doing a commentation on it. So let me let me be upfront about that, right? He is treating Paul's letter as an authoritative letter uh, to, to be discussed, to be sure. Um, but literally, this is what he's talking about. And he's talking about the church, which of course preceded uh, Paul's, Paul's letters. And then here's one last one. This is from Cyprian of Carthage. And I really like this one because there actually was in the early church a dispute over infant baptism, but it wasn't whether or not infants should be baptized nearly as much as it was whether you'd have to wait the customary eight days that you waited in the Old Testament since circumcision was clearly uh, the precursor to baptism. Baptism was the fulfillment of circumcision, the universal version of circumcision. So the question was, well, do we still have to wait eight days? And, uh, or, or Cyprian of Carthage writes this. He says, as to what pertains to the case of infants, you, fetus, uh, said that they ought not to be baptized within the second or third day after their birth, that the old law of circumcision must be taken into consideration, and that you did not think that one should be baptized and sanctified within the eighth day after his birth. In our council, it seemed to us far otherwise. No one agreed to the course which you should have taken, which you thought should be taken. Rather, we all judged that the mercy and grace of God ought to be denied to no man born, no person 
born. Obviously, he's speaking of men and women here, which is clearly the case. Um, in fact, Paul baptizes a woman, Lydia, right, and her family as well. So clearly, baptism is for is for everybody, right? This is kind of an open shut case again. This is this is 253 A.D. Uh, and this is the consistent witness of the church for 2,000 years. And it wasn't until uh, you know the the 16th, 17th century that people started to deny the reality of baptism. I think that's enough to at least make this case. Let's move on and see a little bit more about what Mike has to say. So it's a step, but it's not the whole thing. It's just one of the things you've got to do. You've got to be baptized in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Encyclopedia says about baptism, it makes us Christians. It makes us Christians. Yeah. Now, what does the Bible say about baptism? Well, I, we, don't, we don't have time to do a whole study on just baptism. We take the whole night. So I'm just going to give you one passage, Acts chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. And the Bible here limits who will get baptized based on one concept. So let's let's read about it. Philip is on the road. He meets this eunuch. He shares the, the, the teachings of Isaiah 53 with him. The eunuch puts his faith in Christ, and then he wants to be baptized. And so we pick up in verse 36. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? That's a really good question. He's like, Is there any reason why I shouldn't be baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so this is where we get the phrase believer's baptism. Hey, can you be baptized? Well, do you believe? Is your faith and trust in Christ? Yeah, it is. Then let's, then let's do it. Is it not? And as a normal rule, that's kind of the case, right? If you're an adult and you can speak for yourself and have faith, then you ought to be able to do it. And you, you can't be forcefully baptized, right? Um, but what's actually interesting about this passage in, uh, in Acts is the eunuch sees his need for baptism. So this is the relevant passage. Uh, the Spirit tells Philip to go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up to him, heard him reading Isaiah. This is really funny, too. In fact, Augustine points this out uh, 400 years later. But it's very, very common for people in the old age. When you read, you read. You read out loud. You didn't just sit down with a book and read to yourself. All reading was done out loud. In fact, I think it's. I think Augustine is commenting on Jerome. Um, I think it was on Jerome, and he thought it was really interesting the fact that Jerome would read silently without even moving his lips, and it was almost an unheard of thing. I think it was really kind of neat. But anyway, so he hears the eunuch reading out loud, and he asks him, uh, he's reading Isaiah, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless somebody guides me? This is key, because in all honesty, this points out the necessity of that apostolic tradition. Philip, uh, he explains to him uh, all that had happened. Uh, he explains it starting with the passage, you know, the sheep to the lamb and everything else. But, you know, you can read the whole passage yourself, right? Um, and then you, you, you asks Philip, he says, you know, about whom, pray, does this prophet say? And then Philip opens his mouth and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news of Jesus. And, and part of that good news, the end of that good news, the Great Commission, as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch says, see, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And so right there on the spot, they baptized him. And what's really interesting is having instructed him and baptized him immediately, uh, they come up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord caught Philip up and the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing right and so he's going to go wind up and 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 be connected uh with the church eventually uh etc um and so literally we can see the 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 necessity of baptism and it's just philip and the eunuch right and there's probably people in his party um but he's he's not making a public declaration in front of the church he is wanting the sacrament because it is efficacious it's effective. Then let's not do it. Because this baptism symbolizes your faith and trust in Christ, your identification with his death and resurrection, turning from the world to follow Jesus in your life. And so if you're not, you know, having that position of faith, then it doesn't make any sense. It's kind of hypocritical. Let me apologize. I oftentimes listen to videos at double speed, and I just now realize, it sounds normal to me, but I just now realize I've been listening to these on double speed. So, mea culpa. Critical to do a baptism then. So we believe in uh, believer's baptism. Now there is one passage in the New Testament that talks about a man and his entire household getting uh, baptized. 
wrong. There are multiple passages that talk about entire households being baptized. I already gave them to you. So his household got baptized. However, what the Catholic Church does with this is they say his whole household got baptized. That would include infants. But this assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes that his household included infants. Just by show of hands, does any of you, does your household include infants? Yes. Nobody does. in the room here. Right now. Uh, your average household doesn't have infants in it. So you shouldn't just assume that that's the case and build a whole doctrine off of the phrase in his household. The average modern household has 2.3 kids or whatever. And actually, apparently, the, the replacement rate in the United States at this point is below two. So we've actually fallen in with Europe. And uh, we've accepted what I think is interestingly a Darwinian mentality that's not fit to reproduce uh, we've started having fewer and fewer and fewer children um, which is an acceptance of something that the church is alone the catholic church is alone in in opposing and it brings about the downfall of western civilization uh, just just wait another 20 or 30 years but this is neither here nor there i'm not here to stir up a different can of worms than just what we're talking about with mike here right uh but he's making a really weird assumption he's making an assumption that your household is going to look very similar to the household of somebody living uh in the day of jesus and that's just not the case you know got baptized so there are actually scripture um, scriptural examples and teachings that baptism is not what saves you, but something that comes as a result of salvation. In fact, it's allowed because they're saved. So one more example is Acts chapter 10, just a little bit further along, when Peter is talking with Cornelius, this centurion, and he preaches the gospel to him, and this man ends up uh, believing in Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit just falls upon them and enters them, and so obviously they're saved. When, you're, when the Holy Spirit is in you, New Testament, Holy Spirit filling you, you are a Christian, you are saved. So yes, yes you are. And all this is going to show, because the next thing Peter's going to do is say, well, <laughs> clearly they're saved what's to stop them from getting baptized and they say nothing well let's baptize them why because it's still necessary it's not just a symbol but this also shows that god can work outside of the sacraments when he so chooses he can dispense his grace freely in whatever capacity he desires so peter responds to seeing them filled with the spirit in acts 10:47, and he says can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the holy spirit just as we have See, baptism is like a total after-the-fact thing here. It's like, man, look, well, they're, they're totally saved. God has saved them. God has, has embraced them with his love. He's washed them with Christ, filled them with the Spirit. Hey, we should probably let them get baptized, huh? <laughs> so he's, he's saying, ah, they don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to become Jewish. They just need the Holy Spirit. They just need to believe in Jesus. Let's get him. And that's right. They don't need to become circumcised. They don't need to become Jewish because baptism is the new circumcision. Baptized. So that's the view of baptism in the, in the, in the Bible versus Catholicism. And this is probably going to be the end of this video here. Uh, I can't remember if he goes on. Well, hang on. Yeah, he's moving on to do sacrament. So I think this is a good place to stop just talking about baptism. So we literally made it in 30 minutes, another four and a half minutes in. So that's probably how this whole series is going to go. Uh, and, and you can see, I mean, it just takes time to, to unpack these things. You have to be able to receive what he's saying uh, and then be able to evaluate, is it true? And then be able to come up with, you know, contrary examples, both from scripture and tradition. We're going to do that with everything that he says. Uh, so this is just part two and what's probably going to wind up being a six, seven, eight part series we'll see uh there's seven sacraments so I, I can't remember at this point i haven't watched this whole video through in about a week or two uh, i can't remember if he says all the goes through all the sacraments or not but uh, anyway we're gonna go ahead in this here if you have any questions comments or concerns feel free to leave them down below uh in the comments i'll leave a link to uh mike's video down below again as well feel free to watch it uh again i i love him i think he's my brother in christ and uh, i'm doing this because i think he's spreading some pretty blatantly false 
um, things about the Catholic Church, uh, which is, I think, very clearly the church that Jesus founded. So, uh, and again, if you have any questions, uh, leave them down below. Feel free to like, comment, and even subscribe uh, if you like what I'm doing. Uh, that little subscribe button, that little like button, uh, gives me a little dopamine burst in the brain, and uh, that helps me to want to keep putting out content like this. So if you found it helpful, let me know. And uh, that being said, I'm going to end it here. God bless you. Bye-bye.